Welcome to Strategish, the podcast that tries to liberate the concept of strategy and make it available for everyone. I am your host, Dan Marquez, and I'm joined by my occasional co-host and producer, Craig Overmars. Hello, everyone. Who this time around knew it was coming and was better prepared to respond with his own name. All right. Thank you, everyone, for joining us and welcome. I'm going to run through a few things at the outset of our episode here today. First, recap the the intention of the conversation, right? We're here to talk about why organizations have such a, a hard time with striving for and achieving greatness. Every one of these episodes, our intention is that we're going to dig into that topic and explore one facet of what we think is driving that challenge and see if we can't come away with a a nugget of insight from our, our illustrious guests about what may be creating those difficulties and what we can do to try to undercut it, get around it in the future. I will quickly reiterate our professional disclaimer. Both Craig and myself uh, work at Google as part of the Google Cloud Consulting Organization. Nothing that we say on this podcast is representative of Google's perspective. It is all just our own personal points of view expressed sometimes inanely, sometimes sagely, but always with a a degree of irreverence. All right. We have a pretty exciting one lined up for you. And and the, the thesis that we want to explore in relation to that broader topic around pursuing greatness is how do you stay mission aligned, especially in the face of, of adverse events? that may make it very difficult to keep focus on that mission, to deliver value for your organization, for your stakeholders. That's something we we think is really at the core of why a lot of organizations struggle to achieve these moments of greatness. And it's one that I think our guest today is going to have a lot of unique insights on. So with that, uh, I want to introduce our guest very briefly. So Paul is the CEO of the Ontario Science Center. And I I think that he's going to have a lot of very fascinating things to say to you on this topic. So first off, I'm going to turn it over to Paul. Thank you for joining us. And uh, please feel free to to give yourself a a more elaborate and effective introduction than I did. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm I'm really happy to be here and and interested in this discussion. So so thank you for that. Um, I think a lot of people, I I often get asked uh, to be a mentor in these things. And I always think, oh, I'm... I'm the worst possible candidate because my own pathway was not something others could follow so easily. So I actually started as a high school science teacher. And what I don't think a lot of people know is there's a public high school here inside the science center for grade 12 students from across the province. And so I was actually actually asked to to, uh, teach in that school. I was seconded from the school board to teach in that school. And that was my first experience of working at the Science Center. So I I come with a very different perspective on what Science Centers are and and how they operate. And so that's how I got started in this career. And I I think I'm very lucky in that I get to work in a field and in a place that I'm very passionate about. And I look forward to coming here every day and uh, thinking about what the Science Center does and how we can do it better. That's amazing. And I think there's a lot of people that would have a hard time saying the same about a role at any level, right? I think a lot of people struggle with the work that they do. And I think the, the ability to be able to say that I'm, you know, I'm delighted to come to work, I think lines up pretty closely with what we want to talk about today, which is oh, staying yeah. mission aligned, right? Hard to be a leader motivating people to stay mission aligned if that very mission doesn't get you out of bed yourself. 
before we dig into the, the thesis that we want to explore through Paul, I want to go back to that high level question. Why do you think organizations and, and their leaders struggle with pursuing and achieving greatness? I think there are a number of, of things holding any organization back. I think the hardest thing for most organizations is to define a mission and then have everyone on board rowing in the same direction toward that mission, which is, of course, necessary to achieving greatness. And I think the Ontario Science Center is a good case in point. I think there are something like 10 million people in the province of Ontario, and we are the science center for the province. And that probably means there are 10 million different uh, ideas of what the science center is for the people of Ontario. It's very hard to deliver on 10 million different people's expectations. Everyone has different needs, different agendas when they come to an organization, whatever the organization is. And, and it's very hard for the organization to deliver greatness when you're delivering it for so many different customers or visitors or however you define your audience. That's so interesting. I want to dig into an aspect of that even before we move on with some of the other questions we want to ask you. I think from the perspective of developing a strategy, one thing that will often happen is we'll say, okay, we want to understand our customer base and we're going to decompose them into a number of categories or demographics or target segments. And then we're going to come up with a delineation for that strategy that, it, that goes after each of them in, in a somewhat different way. And for me, I think that is a recipe for achieving okay, right? Or, or good. Like, you know what? Like those people, they're going to be reasonably happy with what you've delivered because man do moms between 25 and 45 like what you're putting putting forward here but to your point if greatness is your objective getting to audiences of one and understanding what a great experience would really look like for each individual person a is kind of a necessity and b is also kind of impossible or, or very difficult to really achieve so figuring out a version where you thread that needle is fascinating. Well, it's super interesting also because most organizations, you're building a product or a service for a target demographic and you can study it and you can understand it and you can define what it means to be great in the context of that very specific demographic. Within this organization, your target demographic is everything. And so defining what it means to be great for everyone is a very unique and interesting challenge. So that, that is interesting because our target demographic isn't everyone. We do prioritize particular audiences. So That's we are awesome. for everyone. Anyone can come, but we do prioritize families with kids and teachers and students. The experiences that we offer are a necessary part of developing a quality education for every kid growing up. Every child growing up here should have an opportunity to experience the kind of uh, educational experience that happens here at the Science Center that is different from elsewhere. And so we have to make sure we reach all those kids. But of course, everyone who grew up in Ontario has great memories of coming to the Science Center as a kid and wants to come back as an adult and experience the same kind of wonder and fun and hope and, and joy that they had uh, as a kid when they were here. They want to experience that again as an adult. And so we want to provide that for them as well. But our target audience is providing those experiences to those kids precisely because the educational experience here is so different from what it would be in a traditional classroom right. and, and is necessary for every child growing up. All right. 
Let's jump ahead and and get into our main topic here today. For me, when I say mission aligned, this goes beyond the business model or the operating model for an organization or even potentially its mandate, especially if you're a governmental agency, right? This is about why you exist, your your long-term purpose, your intent, and organizations that have a clear understanding of their mission and put a lot of their time and energy and effort towards that mission. My hypothesis here is they tend to have better longevity and they are more aligned with achieving greatness just by merit of the fact that their efforts are more focused and they have a clearer view of what greatness actually looks like, as opposed to someone else's definition of greatness, striving for the market standard. I think here, our question of how do you stay mission aligned, especially in the face of adversity, you know, we wanted to start with you, Paul, because the Science Center has gone through some very challenging times and experiences in the last few years. For an organization that is centered around a physical facility and physical experience, COVID is a bit of a catastrophe. I'm wondering if you can tell us about what that was like and how you approached trying to stay mission aligned in the face of such a divergent experience. So for me, this was a, a particular challenge because I started my job in March of 2020. I came back to Canada. I was working in the United States and I came back to Canada the weekend that the Science Center closed. So March the 14th. Um, Timely. Timeless. Exactly. And, and uh, took on this role. Fortunately, I had worked at the Ontario Science Centre previously, as I, as I mentioned earlier, in, in a number of different roles. This is actually my fourth time back. And, and so that helps me to make sure that, like every organization that was based on people visiting, we had to pivot because we could not have any visitors. We were closed for 18 months. Uh, before we uh, began to reopen. And then we actually had a subsequent later closure. And so we had to imagine how we could provide an authentic Science Center experience in the virtual world, virtually to students who were now stuck at home, to teachers who were also stuck at home, uh, and to our visitors who would have come to, to visit, uh, but could not. And that proved a real challenge. It's quite easy to take a lot of what we do and put it out into the virtual world. We deliver school programs in 45-minute chunks. They've been pre-planned. We have curricula for them, etc. It would be quite easy to film those and put them out into the world. But that's not actually mission-aligned. The Science Center provides a particular kind of educational experience that is different. So we promote skills like creativity, like collaboration. We try to get kids to take reasonable risks in trying new things, which is always difficult in a, in a regular classroom. And then we want kids to persevere when it doesn't work the first time. And to create that kind of experience in the virtual world wasn't something we were prepared suddenly to take on. And so at the beginning of COVID, it was very difficult to remain mission aligned because the easiest first step was just to take what we already did and put it out into the world and not think about, is this authentic? Does it create a genuine science center experience for the user out in the world? Um, I'm curious, Paul, that in that case, what would you say was the motivation to put that out there if it wasn't mission aligned? Well, it's actually what we do is necessary. Every kid growing up should have the experience coming here. And so before you 
lose your audience, since you know you are necessary to your audience, you have to make sure that they're not going elsewhere for those educational opportunities that they can rely on you to provide them. Further, I don't want to say that the programming we offer isn't great. It is, and it supported a lot of teachers. You've got to remember at the beginning of COVID, teachers didn't know how to cope with this either. We were asked by the Ministry of Education to provide lesson plans for teachers that could be delivered virtually and experiments that kids could do at home. And so we started to create a lot of that that was much more mission aligned so that we could engage with our audiences in a new way. It was just at the very beginning that we took what we already had available and put it out. But we very quickly had to think about how to make those experiences genuine, but they were necessary. Uh, teachers, students, families were relying on us to provide opportunities because we had provided those opportunities before. So we have always worked with the Ministry of Education to look at creating lesson plans that science teachers and math teachers across the province can use to support uh, the delivery of the curriculum. And it was incumbent on us working with the Ministry of Education to figure out how to do that into this new environment that we hadn't faced before. In March of 2020, we couldn't say, hey, we're going offline for the next six months. And then we expect you to come back and be part of our audience when we come back with only the stuff that we've had a chance to really consider and think about. Instead, we really had to pivot on the spur of the moment and make sure that there were some supports available right when people needed them. But in terms of thinking about mission, that is, it has been a challenge for us, you know, that, that we had to think about. We went. Our website wasn't designed to support educational programming and genuine science in our experiences. Our website yeah. was designed laterally since, say, 2000 to be a marketing tool, to tell people what the Science Center was and to encourage them to visit the Science Center, to know what the experience was when they came here. On that topic, I'm curious. I think what I'm hearing is there was a period of time for which effectively the, the mission, the need from the Science Center shifted on a transient basis, right? Yeah. It was like, for now, what we need from you is to just make the lives of these people as easy as you can in the circumstances. Is it aligned with the long-term mission? No, but maybe, you know, you put that mission on a shelf for a little bit and fundamentally pivoted in the face of that emergent need. Yeah. It reminds right. me of the whole, like, a tactic versus a strategy, a tactical move to provide short-term coverage of an immediate need. But then once that occurred and you were in a satisfactory place, you then reverted back to, well, is it truly strategically aligned with our mission as an organization? Is it sparking the same sort of excitement and curiosity that maybe we could, if we were to look at additional opportunities to virtualize some experience or something? That's exactly correct. I wanted to, to jump into a question, which is, given the experience, Paul, that you had, do you think that these moments of crisis represent an opportunity? for a more fundamental rethink? Like I know we, we kind of highlighted that maybe in the midst of this, you were doing kind of a tactical pivot to shift and focus on something that was the, the need at the time. But does it also open the door for you to rethink those bigger picture topics in a way that maybe you don't necessarily have access to on a day-to-day -day basis? I think it does. And I think we did that. So we, we had a, when I came on board, we were, you know, one or two years into a strategic plan that had a, a lifespan of five years. And I think it provided us a new opportunity to think about what it would mean to truly be the Ontario Science Centre. 
So for a long time, we have this uh, large asset, <laughs> this, this building in Toronto. And in order to maximize uh, revenue and to maximize our impact, we drove visitation to, to the science center itself. Logically, I think all cultural institutions do this. Suddenly COVID hits and we recognize we have to broaden our reach for the whole province because the whole province needs us. But when COVID ends, that need from lots of people across the province who don't have access to the current building, that need doesn't end. And so the, the things you learn during COVID about how do you reach people living in Thunder Bay, people living in Windsor, people living in Ottawa, who, who are as much, you know, citizens of Ontario and rely on the Ontario Science Centre as the people of Toronto do. Could we successfully reach them? And then we have a responsibility as an, as an provincial government agency and as the Ontario Science Centre to reach them. So I think every time you face one of these crises, it focuses on how you can deliver your mission. As you adapt, you realize that what you're adapting to is actually part of your mission all the time. It's not some extraneous thing that then ends. And when we open the doors again, we revert to who we were before. We'll never revert to who we were before entirely because we've learned to engage with much more of uh, the people with whom we're supposed to engage across the province. I live near the Danforth here in Toronto, which is full of these small restaurants who had a very difficult time when COVID started and had to pivot to doing full-on takeout and delivery rather than having in-house seating. And if I look now, those restaurants have seating again and, and they're full, but they're doing a much bigger business of takeout and delivery than they did pre-COVID. Like they've turned that into a fundamental part of their business. So learning to adapt becomes part of who you are after a crisis. Taking away that new DNA around adaptability and factoring it in is a benefit that comes with it, assuming you're able to survive the pain that comes with the threat itself. But how do you use that to challenge and rethink the, the concept of your mission? That's an interesting question. If I think about how we pivoted to go online and how we want to think about that going forward, I was here in 1995, uh, and just as the internet was starting, our website was interactive. I think it may have been the only interactive website, and we had on our website these stupid mouse tricks, science experiments you could do with your mouse. If you held up your mouse and swung it and pressed your space bar every time it completed a cycle, uh, we could tell you how long its tail was using a pendulum equation. That kind of thing is actually a much more authentic science center experience than sharing our opening hours and how to buy a ticket, et cetera, on, on the web. And so it was interesting because it highlighted what we were using our website for and what we could use our website for because we had used it that way before. As organizations do, we'd hired consultants who told us, this is what your website's supposed to be like. Consultants. Interesting. Such trouble. Yeah, every time. But, but it, it is, it's, I think it's true of a lot of organizations, right? Because you, you, as I was saying earlier, we were used to driving people to this physical location because that's how we thought we could maximize revenue and best deliver on our mission. And what COVID showed was that there were other ways that we needed to deliver on our mission to really be accessible to everyone in the province. And part of our mission is to be accessible. 
We have thought about that for years. How do you get people here as opposed to how do you bring the Science Center to everyone? But it was so interesting to me that we'd have this experience of this is a way we can engage. And so we do have some AR and VR on our website. Uh, we've looked at different ways of thinking about the way that we can engage in the virtual world. Uh, and that will continue as we go forward. So that is, as I said earlier, a real way in which we've pivoted and a real way in which we haven't changed our mission. It's a new way to be able to deliver on our mission to more people. What we're redefining is how we achieve the mission so that it's accessible to more people. Yeah, I think there's something really nuanced there. The distinction between your conception of the mission itself being wrong and the the means by which to execute on that mission being ineffective. I think that those two things can probably like look the same in terms of the outcome they deliver. But I think they're meaningfully different in terms of the action that you need to take. I think before we hit record, we had talked about a few concepts here around prevailing wisdom. There's established logic. You're, you're locking into it, right? I think you talked about that with, you know, consultants come in, they have good ideas about what's working everywhere else. You kind of go with it. This is sort of that concept of a fast follower mentality that's pretty common in a lot of organizations, right? It, it works well for folks, which is why people leverage it. We also talked about this idea of like mission calcification, right? That you've been trying to, to stand for something or do something for so long that it just becomes sort of a de facto truth. And then there's very little motivation to try to rethink that or critique it. And now I think what I'm hearing from you is that there was something in between, right? The mission of the science center hasn't really changed. So it's not that the, the mission has been misaligned. It's that there is a lot of, I don't know if baggage is the right word, but there's a lot of history. There's a lot of established structure and norms around how you deliver on that mission and how, and probably importantly, how you don't deliver on that mission. And those have become just truths that everyone abided by and everyone had their kind of little isolated corner of the world where they're like, okay, this is how we do things. This is what we're trying to accomplish. And this is how I'm going to act on it. And maybe something like this just forces you to shake everything up so hard that when you come back out the other end, you have some new ideas, you, 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 you rethought a few things and you can put a new foot forward, I guess. Does that resonate? I think that is absolutely correct. If you hire a, a blacksmith and then pose a problem, the blacksmith is going to suggest a solution to the problem that involves some kind of forming of the steel, right? Like it might not be the best solution. It's the solution for which that person has the expertise. You build up your, your organization over time with people with these different expertises, but they bring those expertises to bear on the problems that come. If you're going to really achieve, you know, we're talking about really achieving greatness. It's that ability to bring something new to bear. That's, and, and that's we very across, interesting. We see this across every software developers learn strategies to solve particular problems. If you go to them with a new problem, they'll use one mm -hmm. of the strategies within their arsenal to solve that problem. To develop a new solution to the problem, that's where the innovation, that's where the, the greatness comes from. Yeah. So here's a question for you. If that's the case, as an organization and as a leader, as the person that ultimately has the accountability at the end of the day, how do you make sure that your organization has the skill of changing its toolkit over time? 
Well, one thing is, as a leader, is to get out of the way. Your job as the leader is not to have all of the skills required, etc. Your job is to create uh, the sandbox for your creative people to experiment and try things. You have to provide the space for people to be genuinely creative, which means they genuinely have to take risks, which means they're often going to fail. And that's not a bad thing as long as they learn from that failure. But as the leader, you have to, to give people that space. And if that means sending somebody out for a course because they've never done that work before, or thinking through what new expertise you need on staff and undertaking a reorganization to think about how to bring that new expertise to bear. That's just part of your responsibility. It's my responsibility to create the sandbox, which means the capacity, the, the funding, the right people, the right expertise, uh, the resources necessary to bring to bear to that problem. And when we don't have those resources, that should fall on me. And do you think that there's something to be said for throwing a wild card into the mix from time to time? Like, I, I do wonder, like, if this is the ecosystem of, of talents and skills and capabilities, everything that you have within the context of the organization, you don't necessarily know exactly what you need, right? Like having something divergent just in the mix might spark something that you didn't anticipate, but is ultimately mission aligned. But at the same time, if you're resource constrained, you're wondering like, is this where I need to be spending my limited resources? Um, I have two things to say on that. First of all, we have tried to solicit ideas from across the science center. So there are lots of organizations who have uh, divisions as we do, each with its own expertise. But we found here in the Science Center, and I imagine this is true of other organizations as well, that you get these emergent innovation when you bring these different expertises together to bear on, the, on, an, on an issue or on a problem or for us, you know, on a new exhibit or something like that. I think one of the challenges is always for people who have an expertise in a particular area, it's hard to recognize others' expertise if it's not in, in the same area or in the same field. If you're an expert in marketing and you really know what the Science Center needs to do to reach people and what it is people are interested in, it's not so easy to step back and hear somebody from education say, but this is what we need to do to change education in the province. So it's bringing those two people together where you get something emergent, uh, that you get something new. But it starts from recognizing that these expertises across your organization are in fact valid and have expertise to contribute to the problem that you're addressing. It can be a challenge to greatness when you have these silos of expertise. They're, they want very much to collaborate but the collaboration starts with an understanding that these other expertises are valid. Especially if those experts are very deep and very genuine in their respective areas, right? Um, you know, I, I've read a ton about uh, complexity theory. I, I wrote about it in my dissertation, but it doesn't, it doesn't mean that you always have the tools at hand to set it up so that it works the way that you want it to work so that you can get this emergent thing coming forward.
What's fascinating is it, it sounds an awful lot like pulling us back to, to the initial question around COVID, but this idea that skill sets and just this tendency over time for tradition kind of blurs the lines between your mission and the way in which you execute. And so people ultimately believe that their expertise or the way that they've always executed, well, that is the mission. And it takes this large external event to basically shake things up, to refocus, to get people to acknowledge exactly what you said, that, well, maybe the way we've been doing it isn't the only way we, we have to do it. And almost separate that idea that the mission and, and the way in which you achieve it are two separate things. And it'll be very interesting because I think what we're trying to get to now is how can leaders capture that same shakeup energy that COVID had to create that right environment when you're trying to solve complex problems, but you're willing to get out of your own shell and acknowledge that there are other expertise and other ways of working that may be superior to achieve your vision. Yeah, I think there's, there's something huge there, right? The idea that for a lot of people, the mission, which I think is supposed to be the why and the how get conflated. What we do is why we do it. These all kind of merge, right? Like I think for a lot of organizations, the products that they sell, especially the products they're most famous for, that becomes the mission in people's minds. But that doesn't make sense, right? Like your, your goal is not there because you want to put a particular product out there and keep putting the product out there. It's because of what it does for the people that buy it. It's because of what it enables them to do, what it makes them feel, whatever that is. I think that conflation is probably a big factor in that what I'll still call mission calcification, but I think isn't actually the mission calcifying. It is the perception of the mission calcifying because of all these other factors and people's willingness to challenge that perception becoming less and less prevalent, right? Because people just assume that's accepted logic. Yeah, like in, in my mind, the way I'm thinking about it is somebody slowly losing their eyesight and you're, you're blurring the two lines increasingly, just naturally over time between what you're trying to do and how you're trying to do it. And COVID and another external events was like going to the optometrist, getting a yeah. pair of glasses and, and refocusing. But we got to get some business LASIK in here. Yeah, Maybe. right. Like, sure. really. what I find so interesting in this, and this is just a science center perspective, but all well, of this is still delivered to your audience, right? Yeah. And so you still have to, whatever your mission is, you still have to deliver on your audience's yeah. expectations of who you are. And I think this is so funny because there are two major complaints. First, why isn't there anything new on the floor? Why does it still look the same as always? And second, where is that wonderful thing I remember from five years ago? <laughs> and those are the two complete. And of course, they're mutually exclusive. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is the other challenge as a science center is, and I think for every organization, is all the time you're being mission-driven and trying to fulfill your mission and achieve greatness at delivering your mission. Your real goal is to deliver greatness in the eyes of your audience. Mm -hmm. And if you're on, this is what I was saying at the very beginning, there are 10 million views of what our mission is. And if we're, you know, we could be the best science center on the planet so and I'm still scary. not delivering on the expectations of our visitors, because in fact, their expectations have nothing to do with us being a science center or succeeding at what our mission actually is. And that's a huge problem for every organization. 
Okay, Paul. So we've, we've covered a lot of things in our conversation so far, I think talked about how the perception of your mission changes, how the ability or the willingness of people to come together is, is challenged for a lot of different reasons. And then the ability to then challenge that mission is limited as a result. One thing I, I want to ask and, and bringing it back and contextualizing it to the Science Center is the Science Center, for, for folks that don't know, is a governmental organization as part of the province of Ontario. And I think in general, government organizations often get criticism for their inability to innovate, their inability to change or to move fast. And I think I've worked with a lot of governmental organizations. I worked with a lot of crown corporations and such. I think they often unreasonably get painted with that broad brush of being ineffective in this way. But I'm curious of your perspective. Do you buy that criticism? What's your point of view on some of the opportunities and some of those limitations that, that come with trying to drive change to innovate in the public sector? I, I think that's a, a very valid and interesting question. Just so people understand, we are a commissioned public body. So we are fundamentally different from some of the other cultural organizations that are also government agencies, but we are much more closely held. So I am myself a civil servant within the hierarchy of the civil service. I, I think I'd like to start with one of the huge advantages of being part of the government. And, and I think it's easy to take that in relation to the conversation we've been having about COVID. COVID started, we shut the doors, and I did not have to worry about paying my staff or laying anybody off. We're a government agency. The government made a commitment from, the, from day one that civil servants would not lose their jobs as a result of COVID closures. And everyone working here, including myself, is a civil servant. So what that meant was we had the resources necessary to be able to innovate and imagine at the beginning of COVID. So we had resources available, whereas many science centers, this is very weird, but my sister is also the CEO of a science center. And they, they, they had to- Checks out, of course, in the family. <laughs> so they had to lay off a large part of their staff. Right there, she's in the United States and where I've also been CEO of science centers in the States, that your natural response, we have nobody coming in the door. We have to lay off the staff. How then do you pivot to become virtual, et cetera? Being a government agency means that you've got the support of the government to be able to innovate, to try things, to have a little bit of maneuverability. Uh, when I was CEO of a science center in the United States, Every month was hand to mouth, you know, did I, did I raise the money I needed to this month? It was very difficult to experiment because there was too much at risk. The government being our support, being a commissioned public body allows us actually the freedom to take some risks that we otherwise would not be able to take. So I think that's a huge, huge advantage. I think the largest disadvantage is a number of layers of hierarchy that might not exist in other organizations. We have very defined job descriptions, et cetera. And when a crisis hits like COVID, that can pose challenges because of course, job descriptions need to change when your circumstances change on that scale. Yeah, they're, they're two sides of the same coin, right? It's you're, the, the benefit is stability and, and the disadvantage that runs alongside stability is inflexibility. Right, right, but the stability mm. itself is necessary to innovation. And I think yeah. that's what a lot of people miss. They think 
that stability means inflexible. But actually, the stability is any organization that's going to try to be creative requires stability first. Absolutely. You know, it, it, it's, um, you know, it, it's what I think of with venture capitalism, all, like venture capital all the time. An, an organization with a new idea, a really strong new idea, needs a deep well of cash in order to be able to experiment and try things and go out there. And if they don't have that cash background, they don't have the ability to go and do the innovative thing we need to do. The stability part is very, very true. I mean, you know, where, where Craig and I work at, at Google, one of the underpinning factors that's part of the core of the, the culture is the concept of psychological safety, right? We want people to feel safe in their ability to do their jobs to, to try to find better and different ways to do their jobs, to try to innovate, to push without feeling like they're constantly at risk, right? They're not constantly on the cusp of something. If one thing doesn't go the way that they were expecting, I think what you're talking about is taking that to like an organizational scale. Yeah. You know, you have the stability and the latitude that allows you to try these things now probably trying them within a narrower band, right? I, I liken it almost to a pressure nozzle. You're, you're able to apply a lot of force against a narrower set of like potential areas, but still it's not just slower, it's more targeted. Mm -hmm. But I think that's, that's really interesting, but also limits, you know, you can't like go totally off script and try to do something completely different, but within a more confined, I'll, I'll call it focus area, you have that latitude, which is powerful. And I don't think a lot of people account for that, um, when they think about the way that government organizations function. That's right. Okay. Before we, before we wrap up, Paul, first off, thank you. This has been a fantastic conversation. Exactly what I was hoping we could discuss and explore here. A lot of interesting ideas that challenged some things that I was thinking about, right? I thought about, uh, mission as something that would sort of migrate away from its true nature over time. But I think it's more that the perception changes. And I think that that window of overlap shrinks as you go. And I think that's really fascinating. We're just trying to get back in, in the zone. I, I think there's a lot of other things we, we learned and we'll, we'll summarize in a, in a moment here, but one last question I want to leave you with before we wrap, is there one thing that you've learned over the course of your career that you think all of our listeners should know? Something that isn't necessarily obvious to folks and is a hard gained bit of expertise or experience over the course of, of your work. So I, I'd like to say two things on that front. So first of all, once one message I, I bring to people here when I talk all the time is I never received a job at the science center the first time I applied. Not even as a teacher in the science school, it was the second year I applied that I got the job. I, I've never got a job here the first time I applied for it. And it hurts. You know, whenever you don't get a job you applied for that you think is in your life plan or that it, it hurts and it's hard, but you've got to figure out why you weren't the right candidate. So the next time you apply, you can make sure you are the right candidate. I think a lot of people in their careers take risks, apply for jobs for which they're not qualified, et cetera. And then they persevere by applying again without taking that intermediate step of analysis of why something didn't work. And the other thing is, we, we think of moving ahead within the organization we're in. And what I've found in my career is that you actually have to move diagonally to move up. You actually have to keep trading organizations to advance your career. 
because you've got to learn how it works outside. And when you work for one of these large companies or for the government where there's pensions and benefits that tie you in, it's a real risk to leave and try something different elsewhere, but it's a necessary risk if you're going to grow. And I think that's really hard for people when they find themselves in comfortable positions, right? You only learn when you're uncomfortable. And it, I think this is really interesting because I, I imagine a lot of your listeners are entrepreneurs or entrepreneurial. And it's very funny. I was talking to somebody just after I came back and was CEO of the Ontario Science Center. So in 2020, and they were talking about that's the lesson of immigration. His parents had immigrated. They came with nothing. They start a, a small business. They build that business. And the kids learn to be entrepreneurial. That's the lesson they learn from being the second generation of immigrants to this country. And I thought, oh, that's so interesting. My parents immigrated with nothing. They actually met here. They, they literally had nothing. And for them, it was much more important to find a stable job in a large company where they could move ahead and have a pension and know that they had that security. They had no interest in being entrepreneurs. And the message they left for us was, how do you secure your future? Work for the government, work for a big company, work for somebody who, which means you're going to have a secure future. And that was the, the message of, of the immigrant experience or whatever. And, and so I, I think people think they need to be entrepreneurial and start their own company to be able to take a risk. And actually that's much easier within, within the stable, uh, environment, et cetera. So that's, I think the biggest lesson I've learned through in my career. I think there's a, an observation there, which is risk necessary, right? Undue risk, maybe not, not worth it, but, but that virtuous cycle of risk into learning, into growth, into having a platform to take more risk and repeating that process and the learning being on the basis of however the risk worked out, regardless of, a, of whether it's a success or failure, because I think. Everyone has had that moment where they're like, don't you know that this is in my five-year plan? Why didn't you hire me? <laughs> it's written right here, you know, receive job, win, win accolades. I don't understand where you guys went wrong, but you know, you guys clearly uh, missed something. It's not hard to see that you're a, you're a science teacher at heart, because essentially what you both just described is apply the scientific method to your own career and lives, which is <laughs> come up with an experiment, take the risk to perform that experiment document your learnings and perform a better experiment going forward, whether that be a career move, whether that be a job application, just apply that same scientific rigor and you'll be successful. Yet nobody would ever have thought of me as demonstrating rigor, but it is exactly right. With that, Paul, thank you so much. We appreciate you coming on to our, our fledgling podcast, Strategish. <laughs> Paul, anything else you want to leave folks with in terms of either ways to reach out to you or ways to engage with the Science Center you'd like to encourage people to take advantage of? I'm imagining you'll share my contact information at the end, but people are welcome Absolutely. Uh, to reach out. Yeah, I'm always interested in engaging and learning more myself. And, and I think that's how we learn is through discussion, through collaboration with others. So if people are looking for partnerships to share their experience, I'm very much uh, interested in hearing. Amazing. All right. Well, Paul, once again, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we'll talk to you again sometime in the not too distant future, I hope. Perfect. Thank you both All so right. much. I really Thank you. It.
Wow, that was an amazing discussion. I don't know about you, Craig, but I found it to be very interesting, not only because I absolutely love the Ontario Science Center and just enjoy any inside track into that place, uh, but also because I find Paul to be just a fascinating leader with a lot of really useful perspectives, especially given what, what those guys have gone through in the last uh, few years. What we're going to do now in looking back on the conversation we just had, we want to extract some nuggets of insight, some things that we think can help to answer our overarching question of why is it so hard for organizations to achieve greatness? Craig, does that sound good to you? Oh, yeah. You're on board? Brace yourself for, for my nuggets. <laughs> Craig, I'm ready. Your nuggets, I am excited. Do you have a first one that really jumps to mind? I do. And I think it's one of the more pertinent things that came out of that conversation that I think greatness isn't objective. I think one of the biggest takeaways for me is that in our conversation, we surfaced that greatness was very contextual and at its heart lies in delighting your target audience and exceeding their expectation. And that in itself is an extremely yeah. interesting challenge because it's very hard when you serve a very diverse and untargeted group of people and almost harder when the people don't themselves don't really know what they want or they want totally different things. Sometimes yeah, I, think that's I, a, I think it's, it's interesting, right? Cause it, it calls out the fact that there's not sort of an objective measure. There's not some master scale out there. That's like great, not great for whether what you did meets the criteria. And, you know, I think we, you and I were talking about this offline of like, does that mean that everything is like completely subjective? Like, I don't think that that's true, but I think that greatness is contextualized to the people that you are delivering for, to the environment that you're in, to the time, right? Like the steam yeah. engine, if built today is kind of like, yeah, that's cool. I'll bring that to my like steampunk event this weekend. But in its time, absolutely transformational, right? There's a concept that, you know, in, in the conversation I called, you know, mission calcification that now I don't even know if that's really even the right analogy. It's not that your mission is hardening, it is maybe off base. It's that I think there's blur. There is a, a lack of clarity and consistency on how people view uh, your your mission. And that's just fascinating because I think that that impacts the organization's ability to do something great because people aren't all pulling in the same direction. Yeah. And I think the whole idea that people have this intrinsic and natural bias that they apply their own solutionings or their own experiences in solving problems so often day in and day out that that becomes their natural tendency in the way that they approach solving a problem. It's a common expression of like, if you're a hammer, every problem's a nail. And because you're living that day in and day out, there's just that natural tendency to believe, well, that's what I do here. That's what this organization is. And of course, that's, that's the mission. There, there needs to be a clear delineation between the mission and the means. It's super powerful. And at so many organizations, I feel like those things just get conflated. They think that what they make is who they are, right? Especially organizations that sort of became famous for a particular product or product set or service that becomes like they are about putting that product into the market. But the reality is that that shouldn't be your mission. Your mission should be how that makes people feel. What does that do for the world? What, what change does that create? Sometimes there's a need to cannibalize your previous successes on behalf of future success. You can't do that if you're tied to, to a product, to a thing, or to how you do work, right? You have to be only tied to what you're trying to achieve. 
and willing to be mutable on what you do and how you do it. Yeah, like, I think that's so interesting because I think we can all think of countless examples of organizations that, that have been lost to the blur, that have so lost focus on what their overall mission was and so tied their identity to the way that they operated, that they refused to change, they refused to adapt, and ultimately became non-relevant because they were unwilling to change because they believe that that's, that's what their brand was, that's what their company was. And in fact, it, it actually leads me into my next nugget of wisdom or, or, or nugget that came out of this conversation, which was... This Nuggets. really interesting idea that these, it, it's these large shakeups, it's these large reset moments that cause the blur to go away and cause you to refocus. And I think COVID, while obviously a terrible pandemic, was an amazing opportunity for a lot of organizations to experience one of those shakeups, to truly uh, reevaluate their mission and, and, and lose that, well, we're not exactly the way that we operate and we do need to reflect on what it is we're trying to achieve. A really interesting piece of that is while it's very disruptive, I think a lot of organizations took that opportunity to realign on, on exactly what their mission is. He mentioned something about how restaurants adapted in the midst of the pandemic and then held on to some of that DNA. I thought that was a, a great example, but it raised a big question for me, which is if you achieve a moment of greatness, especially one that is dependent on a set of unique and sort of exigent circumstances, it raises the bar, right? Greatness, as we've defined before, it raises the bar. It sets a new normal. But in your ability great. to achieve that greatness was dependent on those circumstances, which are transient. You may actually be worse off afterwards for accomplishing something great once everything goes back to steady state and you're no longer able to do what you were what you were able to do in that exigent moment. And I think that that is just so fascinating that there's like a hard decision you may need to make about whether pursuing greatness in that moment is worthwhile. I would always argue that it is, but that you need to then be thinking about fundamental change to the organization to make it, I won't say sustainable, because I think saying sustainable greatness is kind of like a, an oxymoron, right? We said that greatness is a moment in time thing, but the ability, repeatability, I guess, is probably more what I'm trying to get at, right? In the words of... One of our great musicians of our time, you're, uh, you're suffering from success. The example that kind of jumps to mind, how do you be the, the Taylor Swift of greatness? How do you just like put out banger after banger after banger and, um, with no signs of, of letting up yeah. oh, Taylor, she's a big, she's a big fan of the pod. Uh, okay. I had another one that kind of jumped out at me, which is he highlighted that there is, there is value. There is merit sometimes in veering off or doing something that isn't necessarily as mission aligned, where the opportunistic value is very high, is very strong. If it gives you potentially the leverage or the opportunity to be able to be more mission aligned in the future, organizations might go and do something that doesn't have anything to do with their mission, but maybe it gives them some additional investment capital that is then useful down the road for something big they want to do. But in and of itself, it's not really about their mission in any meaningful way. Yeah, well, I think that's, I think it's fine, right? Striking sort of a, a pragmatic balance of recognizing there are some enablers that if you can go get them, they're worthwhile. But if you do that stuff too often, then you can start to kind of veer off course. Yeah. The, the way I like to think about it is, is going off on a side quest in a video game, right? Like it's not the main <laughs> quest. It's not going to make you achieve your goal, but it's, there's an opportunistic value in pursuing that. There's something. Yeah. It'll buff you, right? Yeah, you'll, yeah. you'll be better off for it down the road. But it's not progressing the story 
to to exactly. where you want to go, right? You're you're not gonna you're not gonna finally figure out what's going on and defeat the big boss um, by just like going and fetching cranberries for some random person in town. <laughs> so many yeah. cranberries, um, delicious. What <laughs> of our examples end up coming back to food, Craig? Are we just hungry? Should we not record this uh, right before dinner? I mean, it sounds that way. Mm-hmm. But what's really interesting, and it it's it's definitely a question that I think we should explore in the future is like is there there seems to be a risk of of focusing too much on the side quest, of focusing too much on these opportunistic pursuits and, and genuinely losing sight of of the main quest, of the actual mission of the organization, and too many of your activities are actually mission misaligned and, and you're not making meaningful progress towards what it is you're ultimately looking to do. Yeah. I was listening to another podcast a little while ago that was critiquing GE under Jack Welch, right? And I'm not going to like speak to whether or not this is this right, but their, their thesis was he achieved a lot of big things for that organization, but he did so by fundamentally kind of shifting the focus of the organization to all these ways that he could use the shell of this thing to do a bunch of stuff that wasn't related to innovating on behalf of the American or the global consumer, but instead, how do I use that as a frame to do a bunch of kind of like financial optimization in the market, do a bunch of like buying and selling companies and, and just sort of like mashing them together. And that worked for a time. It worked for a long time, but it didn't leave the organization better off. It didn't serve their customers in a way that it had historically when they had a cleaner, clearer view of their mission, they were like all side quests, yeah. right? And no, no, no I mean, story. Yeah. Another big nugget. I think one of, one of the biggest that came mm-hmm. out of, that mm-hmm. came out of this conversation. I'm ready. Is this really interesting insight that creativity was at the heart of innovation and change, that it was all about creating this, this sandbox where you would force experts out of their comfort zones to genuinely try and come up with something unique, something interesting, something different. And the role of leadership was to create the environment in which people felt mutually respected, which as we learned is a difficult thing to do because there's a natural tendency for experts to only recognize and appreciate similar experts. And it's challenging for folks to have that level of mutual respect for all types of expertise, but that bringing these folks together in this creative environment is really where you see the magic happen of innovation and change. And I thought that was really powerful. Yeah. Do you know what I, do you know what I love about this one, Craig? One, on its face, it seems pretty obvious, right? Like innovation requires creativity is not like a statement that will like sell you any books. You know what I mean? But, but in being so simple, I think if you invert a little bit and you say that an organization that does not genuinely value creativity cannot be great. Dang. That that is a that's a powerful exactly right there, right? Like, and you, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of organizations, a lot of people reflect on their own organizations and say, like, does this place really value creativity? Like, is there creativity going on? Certainly, right. But in a lot of places, it's it's in pockets, right? Exactly. Like, is our marketing team creative? Sure, you know, is our product design team. That like whatever that team is that's off in the corner and they all wear ripped jeans and t-shirts, like they seem cool. Those guys are creative, but yeah, like it's not cool. us. Those people, I think, realize that creativity isn't at the core of how the organization thinks about itself. But the implication here is that if you don't prioritize making creativity core to how you do business on a day-to-day basis, you will never be great. And that is huge. 
many organizations can, can genuinely look back at the way that they treat creative ideas and reflectively appreciate that they've supported those from the, the spark of the idea through to prototyping, right? Like it's through the market, right? Like Like, it's this painfully simple idea, but it's so often discouraged or at least with a lot of barriers or challenges put up where creative ideas are exactly the ones that are prioritized or funded, right? Like it's not, it's not the creative ideas. It's maybe the ideas that have, have the most tried and true evidence behind it or, or, or have the, the largest business case. But, but really I think it's, it's the creative ideas that need, that need the focus. Yeah. All right. I think those are our, those are our big five nuggets, right? Those were some, um, some five juicy nuggets. Yeah. I think delicious. A five pack. As a, as it's known in the business, Hey, can I get a quick five pack of those nugs? Perfect. Well, thank you everyone for listening. Uh, this has been an amazing first episode, at least certainly for me, hopefully for you too, everybody. Um, I do want to do a few quick things before we wrap up here. As a reminder, you can reach out to Paul via the, the Ontario Science Center website or directly uh, on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on LinkedIn so you get updates as these things are coming out. So that's a wrap on episode one of our first season. We hope you all enjoyed it and we can't wait to share more discussions just like this one very soon. Thank you all for listening to Strategish. All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye.